One of the greatest joys in my life is getting to teach the Bible to the teens at our church. And last year, our teen group also did a study in Proverbs, and I'm excited that we as a church get to revisit this book. It's good for the teens to have a refresher, um, and it's good for our church to go through this book of wisdom. The focus of our study, when the teens studied the book of Proverbs, was how to cultivate a heart that craves wisdom. What's striking about the first nine chapters of Proverbs is that as Solomon begins sharing wisdom with his son, he doesn't just want his son to get wisdom. He wants his son to want wisdom. He doesn't want him just to get it. He wants him to want it. And so that's why in chapter 4, verse 7, Solomon had, had written the beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom, and whatever you get, get insight. We're primarily going to be studying chapter 5. We'll get there in a moment. What Solomon is about to do is he's kind of changing tactics. He's, much of the first few chapters so far has been this emphasis on, you, know, you want to know the first step of wisdom? Well, it's fearing Lord, but it's also in addition to fearing the Lord, it's, it's recognizing I need wisdom. That's like one of the first steps to getting wisdom is to recognize the need for wisdom. But Solomon is getting ready to change tactics, and he's going to apply wisdom in large doses to specific needs. And that's kind of what sets us up for the passage we're studying today. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. Look at verse 20, chapter 4, verse 20. Now you hear Solomon's heart for his son. Solomon, as a man, is talking to his son. He's talking to him man to man. He's leveling with him. He's being very real with him. He's pleading with his son. Solomon knows what's at stake if his son does not listen to him. And so he writes, verse 20, My son... Be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. Or let these words penetrate deep into your heart. Verse 22. For they are life to those who find them. And healing to all their flesh. Solomon is again just reasoning with his sons. He's saying it will be good for you if you listen to me. In every single way. He's saying as your father like I want what's best for you. He goes on, verse 23, he says, Keep or guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. Solomon is saying that your heart is the center of who you are. It's the most important part of your life, and you need to be careful what you give your heart to. He says, keep your heart. Guard your heart. There are many spiritual dangers in this world, and to be wise is to be vigilant, to be on alert, to be on guard, to live your life with your head up and your eyes wide open to the many things that can mess you up in life. Look at verse 26. He says, ponder the path of your feet. In other words, think about the direction that you're going in your life. Think about the decisions that you're making. Think about the sort of man or woman that you are becoming. Think about your future. Solomon, again, he's, he's a father. He loves his son. He wants what's best for him. But like all parents, he knows that he cannot make his son choose the right path. 
Solomon is a father. He wants to win his son's heart. In fact, later on in chapter 26, he, he actually says that directly. He says, my son, give me your heart. Let your eyes observe my ways. This is good parenting. Parents, may we always seek to win the hearts of our children. I'm thankful that God, by his grace, let me grow up in a Christian home. Both of my parents loved the Lord, um, and they taught me the Bible as well as they knew how from my earliest days. They weren't perfect, but they were faithful. I've got two brothers. My dad had this thing. When one of us turned 12 years old, he would take us on a special father-son camping trip up in the Adirondack Mountains of New York. Tallest mountains in New York are incredibly beautiful. Um, the tallest ones are above the tree line, which means that once you hike up high enough, you get to the top, and it's, it's just complete rock top at the summits. Once you get to the top, you can look in an unobstructed view in every single direction. You can see so far. The, the views are, are beautiful. They're breathtaking. And it, would, and it would be on that hike, it would be while we were actually working our way up the mountain, that my dad would challenge us. You know, he did it one-on-one. One on one. It would be just him, one of his sons. He would challenge us to live our lives as mountain men, not in a macho, lumberjack sort of way, but as a metaphor for wisdom. He challenged us to live our lives with a mountaintop view of the future, looking far off into the distance in time for every decision we'd have to make. I asked my dad recently about this and his purpose behind doing this, and he said, As you were entering your teen and later your adult years, I wanted to caution you against making short-sighted decisions based on the urge or temptation of the moment, but rather to take into consideration the distant, long-term perspective. I knew that you would be facing many temptations in the coming years and other decisions with far-reaching consequences, and I wanted to give you a mental image which I hoped would come back to you at those critical decision-making times. I think my father was following Solomon's example in the passage that we're looking at this morning. Solomon has urged his son to guard his heart, to ponder the path of his feet. And now Solomon is going to warn of a a specific path that has been the ruin of many men and women. Let's read Proverbs 5. I'm going to read the passage, I'm going to give the main point, and then I'm going to apply the passage in four ways. Proverbs 5. Again, he's appealing to the heart of his son, and he writes, My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion, and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. I sometimes joke that Solomon spends the first nine chapters talking about all the things that his son really needs to know about. His son needs to know about good friends and girls and work and girls and money and girls and girls. That's a rough summary of Proverbs 1 through 9. Solomon gets it. He knows what it's like to be a young man. He knows that this is going to be a life-defining issue for his son. And Solomon is not joking here. He's dead serious. Again, Solomon is showing his wisdom as a parent. He does not want his son to face sexual immorality, temptation. He doesn't want him to face those things without adequate preparation and warning. 
Wise parents, again, will prepare their children for future relationships. They will teach their children about sex and sexuality and about the beauty and goodness of faithful marriage. In the passage we're studying today, we have a father speaking to his son. But the principles here, they extend to mothers and their daughters as well. I appreciated Jonathan Aiken, his observation that to fully understand the father's warnings, we must keep in mind that this section is a father talking to his son. The Bible does not intend to say that all women are hunters stalking down innocent men. The son, the son is clearly accountable for his actions. If this book contained a mother's teaching to her daughter, then it would offer warnings against adulterous men. But here it is a father. He is speaking to his son, and he's dead earnest. And so he warns his son, again, verse 3, that the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. Her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol or to the grave. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me. And do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. And do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. And you say, how I hated discipline. My heart despised reproof. I hated when people warned me. I hated when people were correcting me. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Goes on, verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe, Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline and because of his great folly. He is led astray. This passage carries a heavy warning, but I want you to notice Solomon's emphasis of the word ponder. He uses it three times, actually, in this section. He's trying to get his son to pay attention, and he's urging his son to, first of all, pay attention to yourself. We saw that back in chapter 4, verse 26. Ponder your own path. And then he's urging his son, pay attention to her. This this girl that's kind of captured your attention, pay attention to her life. Notice that she doesn't ponder the path of life. She's not thinking about the, the direction that her life is going. And most importantly, pay attention to God. At the end of the passage, it says, remember that God is pondering the steps you take. You need to think about your own life. You need to think about the life of the people, uh, the direction of the lives of those around you. But you need to realize that over all of it is a God who is watching what you're doing and he's thinking about the decisions you're making. Solomon is teaching his son discernment. What he's doing is he's teaching his son how to see himself, how to see others, and how to see the world like God sees the world. The son desperately needs to be able to see past what this woman looks like. He needs to be able to see past 
how this woman makes him feel, and he needs to be able to see what is the outcome of her life and mine if I hook up with her. What are the far-reaching consequences if I go down this path with her? The son needs to remember that there is a God and that God sees what we do and God cares about what we do. It should remind us of the song, Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little feet, where you go. For the Father up above is looking down in love. Oh, be careful. So what are the far-reaching consequences if you go down this path? What are the far-reaching consequences if you were to go down the path of adultery, which is what Solomon is warning about here? I think his point here is really simple, but it is serious and it is sobering. It's expressed most clearly in verse 14 when he says that adultery will bring you to the brink of utter ruin. Solomon's main point is this. Adultery will ruin your life. It will ruin your life. Men, adultery will ruin your life. Women, ladies, adultery will ruin your life. Teens, you need to hear this. Adultery will ruin your life. That's Solomon's point here. I should probably say it a dozen more times. That's how many times Solomon gives the warning in this passage. Adultery will ruin your life. Every person here should feel the cold edge of a steel blade against our throats when we read this passage. We should feel the danger that Solomon is describing. He even describes it, that this is a danger as sharp as a two-edged sword in verse 4. So feel the cold steel pressed against your throat when you read this passage. This, This entire chapter is just glowing with bright, flashing danger signs in almost every verse. I'm going to go through them pretty quickly. All sorts of warnings here. And FYI, if the letters on the screen are too little, let me know, and I'll remember that next time. (laughs) There are warnings, first, about what will happen to you. Look at verse 5. You see, adultery is the path of death. Verse 9, adultery is how you trash your testimony and ruin your reputation. Verse 10, adultery is how you destroy the life you've built for yourself. This is how you lose everything you've worked for. Solomon gives warnings about how you'll feel when this happens. He says, verse 11, at the end of your life, you will groan in misery. Verse 12, you will despair in shame over your stupid foolishness. Verse 13, you will regret all the wise counsel you rejected. And verse 14, you will feel like your whole life is ruined. At the end, he gives warnings about why this will happen. Verse 22, because you were a slave to your sin. You were trapped in the bondage of your own lust. In verse 23, because you had no self-control and because you were led astray. You did not ponder the path of your feet. You did not turn your foot away from evil. You did not guard your heart. Make no mistake. Adultery will ruin your life. May every man, woman, and teen in this room embrace the warning in this passage. May this truth penetrate our hearts. Adultery will ruin your life. This is wisdom that we must hear and heed. I want to pray, and then I want to apply this passage in four parts. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the clarity of the Bible. We thank you, God, for the wisdom that you've revealed in the book of Proverbs. God, I pray this morning that you would use your word to protect our church. 
to protect our families. I pray, God, that you would use it to expose sin, move hearts to repentance. I pray, God, you would use your word to save souls. And I pray, God, that you would use it to ultimately glorify your name. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So again, I want to apply this in four different ways. Number one, the path of temptation is as delightful as it is deadly. Do not miss the poison mixed in with the sweetness. Solomon warns in verse 3 that the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. Her speech is smoother than oil. He's describing the mouth and the words of this forbidden woman, both her kisses and her comments. Why is she called a forbidden woman? It's because she's off limits. Either the young man is married, she's married, or neither of them is married. But she's seductive, she's beautiful, she's sexy. She's everything a man would want, or so she seems. Solomon says in verse 4 that though she seems sweet at first, she's the source of bitter poison. Though she seems smooth as oil, she's as sharp and deadly as a two-edged sword. This woman does not ponder the path of her feet. In fact, she couldn't care less. Verse 5, her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave. She cares nothing about the path of life. She staggers down a crooked trail. She doesn't even realize it. Over the past year, my five-year-old daughter has been learning about directions. She's slowly learning her way around Madison, how to get to the church, how to get to the library, how to get to her cousin Jack's house. Sometimes we'll drive down the road and she'll ask, where does that road go, Daddy? In her mind, every road has one simple destination. She's like, Daddy, where does that road go? Solomon wants you to know, what is at the end of the path that this forbidden woman is on. This path leads to the graveyard. If you chase her, you're going to get death and destruction. James warned about this in the New Testament. In James 1, he wrote that each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Sin never satisfies. It always destroys. It never delivers on its promises. It always leaves you empty and hollow and unsatisfied. So men and women at Tri-County, be on guard. Because let's face it, if you're going to face a temptation, like what's being described here, it might be with somebody that you don't know. It might be. It might be a complete stranger. It might be a freak opportunity that you never could have seen coming. It might be an unexpected encounter. But most likely, in most situations, it'll be with somebody you already know right now. It'll be somebody you see frequently, somebody you like, somebody you trust. And so if you are allowing your mind, if you have allowed your mind to fantasize about what romance or even sex would be like with that person, when God's word clearly says that they are off limits, then hear this point right here loud and clear. The path of temptation is as delightful as it is deadly. Don't miss the poison mixed in with the sweetness. Solomon builds on that in the next section. Number two, the path of adultery will devastate your life in countless unexpected ways. So take extreme measures to avoid this temptation. Solomon understood the horror of adultery personally. His own father, David, 
had committed adultery with his mother Bathsheba. David's adultery was like a terrorist bomb going off. There was carnage everywhere. It literally led to people dying. First the death of Bathsheba's first husband, then the death of her child. Sin is the worst. And when you're in the thick of temptation, you're not thinking about long-term consequences. You don't want to think about long-term consequences. But wisdom says you must. Sin makes us stupid. Sin makes us blind. All we see is what's right in front of us. We can't see past the pleasure to the horror on the other side. All the miserable years of regret and loneliness. All the tears and weeping of your spouse. The look on his or her face when you're found out and discovered. All the anger and rage from a spouse betrayed, either yours or theirs. The trauma and confusion for your kids as your family tears apart. The possibility that your kids might never speak to you again after they find out what you did. Terrifying question of divorce and separation. The pain and misery of sexually transmitted diseases. The shame of your own spouse having to go to the doctor to get checked out because of your unfaithfulness? It's hard to foresee the loss of your job or your ministry, the spiritual harm done to young Christians who used to look up to you, the disgust of unbelievers when they realize that you're a complete fraud and hypocrite. Nobody wins. Everybody loses. Adultery will ruin your life. It might ruin other people's lives too. I want to acknowledge that what we're studying this morning is personal and painful for many in our church family. And if there has been horrific unfaithfulness in your family's history, then you know the pain and the agony and the heartache that Solomon is warning about. You know that adultery hurts everyone in the family, especially children. I just want to say, if if that is you, I have already been praying for you this morning. May you, by God's grace, Break the cycles of unfaithfulness in your family and start writing a new and better story. Solomon says that we need to take extreme measures to avoid this temptation. He tells his son, look at verse 8, keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. In other words, don't test yourself. Don't wait to see how spiritually strong you are. Don't stick it out and just hope for the best. Flee. Run away from temptation. Don't put yourself in bad situations. You want to beat this temptation? Then beat it, literally. Don't fight alone. Get help. Confess to a trusted friend the temptation you're facing. Get counsel. Get accountability. It might not seem like a big deal. It might seem like just a little bit of fun. It might feel like you're just flirting or messing around. Maybe you've had a long day. Maybe your hormones are raging. But this sort of sin will ruin your life. Years ago, Steve Green wrote a song based on this passage. He said, What appears to be a harmless glance can turn to romance, and homes are divided. Feelings that should never have been awakened within, tearing the heart into. Listen, I beg of you, guard your heart. Guard your heart. Don't trade it for treasure. Don't give it away. Guard your heart. Guard your heart. As a payment for pleasure, it's a high price to pay. Next part of the song captures the danger perfectly. He writes, The human heart is easily swayed and often betrayed at the hand of emotion. You dare not leave the outcome to chance. You must choose in advance or live with the agony. Such needless tragedy. Guard your heart. Those two words, 
perfectly sum up the devastation of adultery. Needless tragedy. And I also want to point out that adultery is a path. It's not just a destination. It starts in your heart. You might be mentally and emotionally on the path long before you ever get there physically. Jesus taught in Matthew 28 that anyone who looks at a person with lustful intent has already committed adultery with them in their hearts. Adultery starts in the heart and mind. And let's just face it. If you want to indulge a little bit of lust, it is really easy to do that these days. All you have to do is grab your phone or your TV remote or your laptop or your Kindle, a few clicks, a few searches, a few swipes, and boom, you have instant access to your own private fantasy. It's really common. It's, re- it's not hard. It's really easy. It's really common both in society and in the church, both among men and among women. The main point of Proverbs 5 is adultery will ruin your life, but we could also extend that to say that porn will ruin your life. It's just as true. Porn is poison that you drink to feel good and it will ruin you. It'll make you a hollow person. It'll harm your marriage. It'll freeze your love for Jesus. It'll pervert how you see other people. Like verse 22 says, you will be enslaved to this sin. You will become increasingly addicted. If that's you, what you need most is the gospel. With all of Christ's glorious promises and power, you need Jesus to rescue you from your sin. I call on you. Repent of your sin. Call on Jesus to save you from your sin. Titus 2, verse 11 says that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. There are many in our church who have struggled with pornography, and there are many in our church who have experienced lasting victory. If you're struggling, you are not alone. Ask for help. Don't keep it a secret. I love the hope that Heath Lambert gives in his excellent book, Finally Free. He writes, no matter how terrible pornography is, no matter how much trouble you are in, no matter how flimsy and weak your resources are, you are never in a pit so deep that the grace of Jesus cannot lift you out. There is no porn user so enslaved that Jesus cannot set him or her free. There is no struggle for purity so intense that Jesus' grace cannot win the battle. There is no consequence so steep that Jesus' power cannot carry you through that consequence. Jesus' grace to change you is stronger than pornography's power to destroy you. I love getting to tell the teens this and, and others in our church that Jesus is alive. And because he is alive, the grace that God offers you in the gospel is real power that is mightier than any temptation, guilt, or shame you could possibly face here on earth. I also want to mention that there are several resources in the lobby that are centered on the gospel that might help you in this fight. In the the far right, you see You Can Change by Tim Chester. This book was life-changing for me in my struggle against sin when I read it over a decade ago. Finally Free, the one in the middle is the one I just quoted from. Then Purity is Possible, um, the one on the left. This is a book that's written by a woman for women who struggle with porn and immoral fantasies. So again, the path of adultery will devastate your life in countless unexpected ways. Take extreme measures to avoid this temptation. Choose to take a better path.
Number three, the path of faithfulness is beautiful and satisfying. So find intoxicating delight in God's incredible gift of marriage. Solomon urges his son to enjoy God's wonderful gift of sex within his, with his own wife. He says, as the NOT puts it, drink water from your own well. Share your love only with your wife. Why spill the water of your springs in the streets having sex with just anyone? You should reserve it for yourselves. Never share it with strangers. In other words, sex is for a husband and wife to enjoy within the security and the privacy of their own marriage. Not everything is for sharing. Verse 18, he says, Let your fountain be blessed. Rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. These verses might seem weird and awkward. I just want to point out, marriage is a good thing. The Bible is as strongly in favor of sex inside of marriage as it is against sex outside of marriage. It's God's idea. It's his gift. It's his design. He designed it. He invented it. He delights in it. And it's a verse like this that leads to really good things for both a husband and for a wife. You guys might think it's weird for me to teach it to you right now. I taught this passage to teens last October. (laughs) When I taught this passage to teens, this is what I told them. I said, you guys who are going to be husbands someday, you will want to love your wife like this. And you girls who are going to be wives someday, you will want your husband to love you like this. You want a husband who is in love with the wife of his youth and not just the youth of his wife. If he's in love with the wife of his youth, it means he's going to love his wife as a person, not just as a sexy body. Too many men love the youth of their wife And when she doesn't look young anymore, they go shopping elsewhere. But for men who love the wife of their youth, she becomes the standard of beauty. She's a 10 and everyone else, by comparison, is a zero. I love how C.J. Mahaney puts in his book, Sex, Romance, and the Glory of God. He says, in a world starving for genuine, lasting intimacy, a loving Christian marriage is a powerful witness to the gospel and the goodness of God. And then describes Solomon's romantic words for his wife in Song of Songs like this. He says, The husband is lavishing high praises upon his beloved in an effort to communicate her effect on him. These are expressions of his heartfelt evaluation of her. They are not based on cultural criteria. Others may not share his assessment of her beauty, but he doesn't care. This is how he sees her. And together, they rejoice in that assessment. Faithful, committed marriage is a wonderful thing. Proverbs 18, 22 says that he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. The path of faithfulness is beautiful and satisfying. So find intoxicating delight in God's incredible gift of marriage. This passage is written directly to men, but it's helpful for women as well. I would say this passage actually dignifies women. So I want to appeal just for a moment. I did this before. I want to say it again. I want to appeal to any girls here who are unmarried. Any girls who are not married right now. Girls, don't give yourself to a guy who hasn't proven that he's going to love you till death itself tears you away from each other. Who hasn't proven that he's committed exclusively, entirely to you, forsaking all others. Girls, don't give yourself to a guy 
who isn't willing to publicly and formally declare to the world that he loves you, that he will always love you, and that he will legally bind himself to you in marriage. Girls, don't give yourself to a guy who hasn't demonstrated that he is willing to fight against his own sin, fight against his own lust, who hasn't proven that he wants to guard your purity and honor you with his gaze and with his touch in a way that glorifies God. Girls, don't give yourself to a guy who hasn't shown the character of a man who's willing to sacrifice his own comfort, his own preferences, his own needs to take care of others around him. Don't give yourself to a guy who isn't willing to love you both in life and death with strong, unyielding, Christ-like love. Obviously, not everyone here is going to get married, and that's okay. In fact, the Bible clearly teaches that as wonderful as marriage is, singleness is good and valuable. It's in 1 Corinthians 7. Singleness is God's plan for many people's lives, but everyone, every person here, all of us, those who will get married and those who don't should possess a high view of marriage. We should all value it and treasure it. We should all honor it the way that God honors it. I should also point out that even Christian married couples will struggle in their sex lives. There are a lot of factors, physical, emotional, mental, spiritual, that can affect us. Marriage is amazing, but it's also hard. And because of sin and the curse, our marriages and our experiences within marriage are never going to be perfect. Rebecca McLaughlin, in her book, Confronting Christianity, observes that in one sense, human marriage is designed to disappoint. It leaves us longing for more. And that longing points us to the ultimate reality of which the best marriage is a scale model. So let's be clear here. Sex is not ultimate. Marriage is not ultimate. God and his glory and his love for us, that is what's ultimate. Rebecca McLaughlin points out that we live in a world where sexual and romantic fulfillment are paraded as ultimate good. Miss out on sex, we are told, and you miss out on life. But within a Christian framework, missing marriage and gaining Christ is like missing out on playing with dolls as a child, but growing up to have a real baby. When we are fully enjoying the ultimate relationship, no one will lament for the loss of the scale model. Path of faithfulness is beautiful and satisfying. Find intoxicating delight in God's incredible gift of marriage, but know that our ultimate joy will not be complete until we see Jesus. And everyone, whether you're single or married, remember this. Number four, the path of your life is under God's watching gaze. So discipline yourself to stay true to the path of righteousness. You look again at verse 21. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord. He ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. Your life, Christian, is lived before the ever-watching gaze of God. God is watching you. He's watching you flirt. He's watching you talk. He's watching you text. He's watching you when you're all alone. God is watching everything you do. He's paying attention to your life. And you will one day stand before him and give an account for your life. We should all increase in reverent and holy fear of the Lord as we remember God's constant watching gaze on our lives. But that's not ultimately going to change us. Remembering that God is watching us might be a deterrent, but we're pretty good at ignoring God. We shouldn't, but we do. I sometimes find myself sinning, and while I'm sinning, I'm already planning about how I'm going to make things right with God when I'm done. 
I'm literally thinking about God while I'm sinning, and it doesn't keep me from sinning. That's how messed up I am. So how are we going to discipline ourselves to stay true to the path of righteousness? How do we keep the last verse in this chapter from reading like our own obituary? The answer is we need Jesus. We need Jesus who perfectly walked the path of righteousness ahead of us. We stray constantly. We fail constantly. Jesus never strayed. Jesus never failed. But he gives us his righteousness. He took the full punishment for our failures instead of us. We don't fight our sin because we're trying to achieve righteousness. No. Because of what Jesus has done for those who are relying on him, we are already there. God already sees us as righteous. Now we live it out. Now we walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Now we live lives controlled by the Holy Spirit who is at work within us. Now we follow the path of righteousness that not just Jesus, but that thousands of other weak and faithful Christians have walked ahead of us. You're not the first one going down this path. You're not the first Christian to say no to your flesh and fight against really strong sinful desires. This is a path that is well-worn by many faithful, persevering Christians who went ahead of us. And they made it. They made it to glory. Yet it wasn't them, but the grace of God at work in them. Brothers and sisters, make no mistake. Adultery is a horrendous sin that will ruin your life. In response to this passage, you should sense in yourself an honest, yeah, I'm capable of that. And a determined and desperate, God, keep me from that. Keep me faithful. And for those of you who would say, Greg, it's too late. I've already blown it. I've already ruined my life with my stupid choices. May the last word you hear this morning be one of grace. In a moment, we're going to sing, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, gracious Savior of my ruined life, my guilt and cross laid on your shoulders. In my place, you suffered, bled, and died. You rose. The grave and death are conquered. You broke my bonds of sin and shame. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, may all my days bring glory to your name. Let's pray. God, we fix our eyes on you, and we say to you, the God who is full of steadfast love and mercy, have mercy on us in our sin. We pray, God, that you would humble us, work in us genuine, true repentance and sorrow over our sin. We pray, God, that you would fortify us against temptation, galvanize resolve in our hearts, to fight our sinful desires, to say no to those things, and to say yes to Jesus and to put on his his character. We pray, God, that you would transform us to make us more and more like Jesus so that we would be a people um, that are becoming holy like you are holy, God. We pray this asking for help in Jesus' name. Amen.